Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, what is it like to be nominated for an Academy Award? We meet an Alberta-based filmmaking duo who are up for their third Oscar for Best Animated Short, this one called The Flying Sailor. We meet a BC entrepreneur who is making it her mission to create safety gear and clothing tailored for women in the skilled trades where so much of what's on offer just doesn't fit. We speak to a UK-based expert on the lessons learned there after sports betting rules were loosened more than a decade ago and why Canada should pay attention to the problems they've faced. But first, it has already been a deadly year for avalanches in BC. We find out why there's been an increased risk and we hear from someone who survived a deadly 2003 avalanche about what that day taught him about risk. beautiful parts of the world. It is the backcountry in the interior of BC, where the mountains and valleys attract people from around the world, either to ski, to hike, you name it. But this year has been a dangerous one there. Avalanches have already killed five people in the past month, including two off-duty police officers, and on Monday, two brothers from Pennsylvania who died when an avalanche hit a group of heliskiers near Revelstoke. One other person, a guide, was caught up in the slide but is expected to recover. Here is RCMP Sergeant Chris Mosso earlier this week. BC Corner Service and with that heli skiing company uh, to make a determination to see if there was any um, criminality involved at all um, that heli skiing company is working very closely with and is uh, participating um, with, with the investigation. Now, a lot of people have been talking about just how dangerous the snowpack is this year, and we'll get into that in just a second, but it harkens back to some of those more dangerous years, such as 2003. Once in a decade, essentially, we have a really dangerous avalanche season uh, because of the conditions. A press release from CMH Heliskiing said three individuals were caught in the slide, two were fully buried, located by their transceivers. One was partially buried. The company's CEO had this to say to Global News a little earlier this week. Our guides, uh, through their uh, assessment and years of experience and uh, following the snowpack uh, uh, throughout the season, deemed it to be uh, to be safe to ski that day. Well, joining me now with more on this is Tyson Reddy. He's an avalanche forecaster with Avalanche Canada. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on the show. So tell me a bit about what you do. Um, so I'm a public avalanche forecaster. So one of, well, my, my largest role within the organization is to produce the public bulletin. So this is a service that's available for anyone in the public. Um, it's um, uh, a product that gives people a bit of an idea what's going on um, in terms of avalanche hazard in the backcountry um, in Western Canada, as well as parts of Eastern Canada. Um, and this product is published every afternoon um, between uh, 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. So what are we seeing this year? Because I've been reading a lot about what's been going on, but what specifically are we seeing in BC or in Western Canada? Um, well, the big, um, the big thing that we've been talking about quite a bit uh, this season and, and really specifically in the last four weeks um, is a weak layer um, that was formed uh, in the snowpack in, uh, during a very cold period in late November. Um, and that weak layer has since been buried by the, the season snowpack. And so in some of the shallower parts of the interior, it'd be buried by 70 or 50 centimeters of snow. And in the deeper parts of the interior, it's buried by as much as three meters of snow. 
Um, and so any avalanche that were to be triggered on this layer would generally be quite large and dangerous. Um, and this type of weak layer has, you know, has been with us uh, throughout the season so far. It's likely to continue to be in the snowpack um, for the coming future. So it's a, it's a very concerning avalanche problem. Yeah. What, what, what happens when you have that weak layer? It almost sounds like when you're trying to move something heavy and you put something slidey underneath it, it, it allows it to gain momentum, right? Is that a bit what's going on with the snowpack? Um, to some extent, yes. Uh, so basically what this layer is like, um, when we have very cold, dry weather, we often see um, weak layers form and then later they get buried by the snowpack. And so in this case, it was a, uh, a crust um, with a very unconsolidated um, snow, a, a bunch of very unconsolidated snow crystals above and below in these unconsolidated snow crystals are called facets. Um, and in some cases, uh, they continue to grow and they get quite large and they become an even weaker snow crystal that we call depth core. So these weak snow crystals are uh, quite, um, quite widespread throughout the interior. And then if we look at, um, if we sort of make a slope-specific analysis, often they'll be evenly distributed throughout the entirety of a slope. And so this is quite um, a problematic situation because if you are to trigger this layer, causing a, a, you know, if your presence on the slope is able to cause a collapse in this layer, that failure can propagate, um, travel through uh, the snowpack, resulting um, in a large uh, avalanche. And this can actually even happen um, without you being on the steep slope that avalanches, and that's referred to as a remote trigger. So your presence in an adjacent slope or a shallower slope um, below a steep slope can cause the steep terrain around you or even worse above you to avalanche and then come down on you. So um, it's a tricky layer for a number of reasons. The remote triggering concept that I just mentioned is a, is a particularly scary one, as well as the, uh, the widespread nature of this layer. Um, on a regional scale as well as often on a slope-specific scale. And then, um, as I mentioned at the start there, the depth of this layer is quite concerning. If you are to trigger it, it is going to be a large destructive avalanche. And I gather just from reading about this, uh, even for trained people who know these these areas well, it can be hard to spot. Yeah, it's not so much that it can be hard to spot. It's that it can be very hard um, to predict where you could trigger it. Right. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. It has been a very challenging layer for both um, for both backcountry recreational backcountry users as well as avalanche professionals. Um, and the reason being is you may be able to ski many steep slopes or travel below many steep slopes, and nothing happens. It might be the the sixth slope of the day that you travel on that you're able to trigger a very large avalanche on, or you may be able to travel throughout the mountains and ski many steep slopes ride many steep slopes on your sled and nothing happens. Maybe nothing happens for days. Maybe it's your, your fourth day, the last day or your holiday. And that's when you find the sweet spot and you trigger this massive destructive avalanche. And so the message that we're really um, trying to, trying to get out to people is that, you know, uh, often we would tell people, Oh, look for signs of instability. And that would be avalanches and other things. But in this case, the lack of signs of instability is not lack of instability. So you really just have to, um, you just have to stick to really um, conservative, mellow, simple terrain when recreating in areas where this layer is indicated as a problem uh, within the public forecast. 
And you've had experience with this, these sorts of conditions before, right? I, I gather this has happened, uh, certainly happened back in 2003, but this is not the first time we've had a winter like this one. Yeah, it's not the first time that a problem like this has plagued us for prolonged periods of time throughout the winter. Um, these types of problems on, on a more regular season would sort of be a fluctuating thing where they may be active for a period of time and go dormant and, and become active again. And um, we're, it's a little bit different in this situation because it became active very early in the season and it seems to be continuing to be active in that sort of sporadic nature that I described earlier. And you referenced 2003, and that's a, that's a good year to reference because it was a very um, it was very similar um, in, uh, in the snowpack conditions that existed that year. Um, and it was also a very dangerous year for avalanche accidents. Um, 29 people were killed in avalanche accidents that year. Um, and several of those accidents involved uh, multiple uh, fatalities. And so that year was actually what prompted the formation of Avalanche Canada. A number of right. um, avalanche professionals recognized that this was an issue and we needed to be able to present um, information and warnings to the public about avalanche hazard. Uh, Tyson, I was looking at some of clearly we talked a bit about 2003 and what a terrible year that was and how it led to a concerted effort to try to, to provide the kind of information you provide every day now, which is a better, a better information. It seems, though, despite the tragedies, and there are a lot more people, I think, in backcountry these days than there were in decades past, that we are getting better at, at, at heeding these dangers and respecting them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the numbers of backcountry users has really just um, taken off in the last few years. Uh, last year, we had 12,000 uh, students in um, avalanche skills training courses. Uh, so, yeah, the sport's definitely getting um, sports, sledding, skiing, uh, cross, or snowshoeing are definitely growing in popularity. And at the same time, uh, we're seeing our moving 10-year average of avalanche fatalities decrease. Right now, it's at a little over 10 um, per year, and that's the lowest it's been since uh, I believe it's 1997. And and the avalanche training you mentioned, I, I noticed that a lot more people are signing up for avalanche training. A lot more people aware of the risks. Yep, that's absolutely right. Lots of participation in those courses, um, and as a result, we've now created some uh, some courses that are now specific to snowshoers, specific to sledders. Uh, some new courses that complement uh, the core stream, the Avalanche Skills Training Level 1 and 2. There's some additional courses that supplement those. Is there anything more we could be doing? I mean, I know that technology has also made, made a big difference these days as well um, when it comes to at least trying to protect people from these, from these incidents. Um, you know, I would say that one of the, you know, one of the big things that... Um, we need to uh, hopefully continue doing is what we're doing right now, um, looking at, um, at other avenues to get that message out to individuals. So when we have sort of, um, you know, complex and challenging conditions like what we do now, um, you know, shows like yours are a great way to get the message out to other individuals that are maybe not um, aware of our product or maybe not looking at it every day before they go outside. Um, this is a great way to reach new audiences. Any last word of advice to uh, to listeners out there from Avalanche Canada tonight? Yeah, you bet. Get the gear, get the training, get the forecast. So uh, make sure that you've got your probe, shovel, transceiver, an emergency communication device. You take an Avalanche Skills training course, so you know how to use those tools. You know how to interpret our forecast. Make sure you get that forecast before you head out so you know what's going on in the mountains. 
Tyson Reddy, as always, thank you so much for your uh, for your advice and your insight on this tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, we're talking avalanches and avalanche danger this hour. In the last uh, half hour, we were speaking with an avalanche forecaster at Avalanche Canada. Of course, he was mentioning that that organization was created after a particularly bad winter in 2003 when 29 people were killed, most of them in BC. One of those tragedies happened near Revelstoke uh, 20 years ago last week. And that group, has, um, there was a group of people skiing that were hit by an avalanche uh, there. And then just a few weeks later in February, a group of high school students, seven of them, uh, were also killed in an avalanche. So it was a year that brought a lot of tragedy, a lot of awareness to the dangers of avalanches and certainly changed uh, the way that we pay attention to the risks that are involved. One person who knows those risks all too well is Ken Wiley. Uh, Wiley, he is a survived one of those avalanches in 2003 and uh, has carried the impact of that, the memories, the lessons ever since. Uh, he now works in risk management, helping to guide people away from danger, not just in the backcountry of BC, but far beyond that. He's also been watching uh, closely this year as a similarly unstable snowpack to back in 2003 is claiming lives once again. And he joins me now from his home on Vancouver Island. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. I guess when you when you see news of years like this, when people start talking about <clears throat> 2003 again, it must bring back a lot of memories, good good and otherwise. Yeah, you know, it was a um, <clears throat> it was a challenging year, and um, um, I the two avalanches that you uh, mentioned, one was um, um, north of Revelstoke at the Duran Glacier on a run called La Traviata. and the other with the um, the school kids from Strathcona Tweedsmere School. That was in uh, Connacht Creek near Rogers Pass, and um, I was um, working in the, as a an assistant guide on the first avalanche and was buried um, for 45 minutes, and we sadly lost seven clients. And my first day back on skis, um, I um, responded to the Strathcona Tweedsmere avalanche, and so that winter um, had a big impact on my life in a whole bunch of ways. And, um, yeah, I think that I've done a fair bit of work to metabolize some important lessons from, from those events. Tell me, I mean, so many listeners will have absolutely no idea what it's like to see an avalanche approach and then what it must be like to be caught up in one. I mean, we see, we see the images of it on TV and videos, in movies, but it must be, it's an almost indescribable experience, I'd imagine. Yeah, you know, I think um, you know, both for your listeners that haven't, you know, been in in the winter mountain environment, um, and your listeners that are, um, you know, winter mountain enthusiasts, I think that it's important to understand that um, avalanches are incredibly powerful. I think that it's really easy to to underestimate them, um, and. <clears throat> um, you, you, for example, uh, uh, just from the just from the air blast from an avalanche, um, you know, maybe a size three avalanche. Avalanches are are rated from you know kind of a size one, which is ten tons of snow, all the way up to um, size three, which is a thousand tons of snow. So the three, you know, is three zeros. A th size three avalanche can snap timber that's you know, um, like a uh, a pine tree that's probably you know a foot in diameter 
um, can be snapped off from the air blast of an avalanche. So um, the power of avalanches is is um, humbling, to say the least. What was it? What was it like? I mean, as much as you can, take me back to that day. I, I just I I can't imagine what it would be like to be to be buried by an avalanche, and and what must go through your go through your mind as you're waiting to be rescued. Um, <clears throat> well, that day was, um, it was, it was really interesting because I woke up not wanting to, you know, go to work. Um, so I kind of had an intu- intuition and I think that that's really important to kind of, kind of listen to and pay attention to is, um, if you're, if you're feeling uncomfortable in any way, then it's it's really important to listen to that. And I was feeling really fragmented. I was, I wasn't I wasn't in in alignment at all that day. And and um, so that was you know really good information for me that I didn't pay attention to, unfortunately. Um, but um, the I think that the the lead up was more horrible than actually being buried because. The lead up was really uncomfortable. Um, just kind of the the social environment was wasn't wasn't really great, and people were scared, and um, and so I think that that that's an important piece to to pay attention to. But I was fortunate. I um, I when the sto- snow start, we were we were ascending the slope. So what we were doing was we were um, backcountry ski touring. So we had um, basically seal skin for those of your listeners that have never been seen anything um, about backcountry skiing. It's kind of like seal skin. Um, we call them skins, um, skins on our skis and, and our, our bindings were able to, um, our heels were able to lift so that we could ascend the slope and 21 of us, which is kind of breaking a cardinal rule. Um, so many people on one slope at the same time Right. when the avalanche danger rating was considerable um, 21 of us were on the slope and it settled and then released um, and it started sliding and I was fortunate because the piece of snow that I was on didn't break up immediately so I was, I was on my side and I was able to kick my skis off and um, being in an avalanche is kind of um, yang and yin so you want to fight, you want to keep on the surface you want to you know do as much as possible as you can to to stay on the surface and um but then once you're once you're buried once you're beneath the snow um that's the yin that's the the you want to relax and it's difficult um but i that was probably the most the easiest part of the day was just being under the snow and i never never considered that um, it was going to have a terrible outcome. Um, I'm not sure why, but and then the then the worst part was being dug out and realizing what had happened. Um, that life as I knew it was going to be changed, and and kind of later the next day learning that there were seven fatalities, um, and. And so, you know, your listeners, they, you know, might be backcountry ski enthusiasts or, or people that um, are interested, snowmobilers or, um, or um, backcountry split borders, they might be interested in, you know, being in avalanche terrain. 
this winter. And and my message is is that um, be really conservative with your terrain choices because you don't want to experience um, being in an avalanche and you don't want to experience the, the potential aftermath. It, it turns something that's really fun, like being in the winter mountain environment, into something that's uh, a nightmare. Um, and <clears throat> I've survived, and I've survived my survival. Um, and now I teach risk management, human factors risk management courses, um, chiefly because I still believe in the process of adventure. I think that being out in the mountains and being in adventure experiences is, you know, a, a critical thing for us humans to do is to make choices in con- in, in situations that are real and have consequences. Um, and that's a, a really engaging thing to do in, in one's life, um, to learn how to make good choices. Um, yeah. Regardless yeah. of where you are, right? I mean, what you will have learned that day. I, I didn't know that you. the next time you were back on skis is when that other horrific event happened with the high school kids. Because yeah. I remember those, I remember that, you know, I was living in the East, but I remember that, I remember that winter. I think it left a, a, a very deep impression on a lot of people. Uh, you know, the, the future prime minister's brother had been killed a few years earlier in an avalanche. I think mm-hmm. we suddenly woke up. I mean, even if you were nowhere near the back countries of BC, but what an absolutely... Um, how did you manage to sort of gather yourself after that that winter? Took a long time. Um, took a long time to want to be back in on my skis again, um, and it took a long time for me to um, to be in the mountains, leading others in in avalanche terrain again. Um, There's a lot of really hard work, um, and and fundamentally, I think that. Um, what um, what helped me most um, was identifying, you know, all the things that, um, as a as a as a assistant guide, all of the things that I did that contributed to the you know the tragic outcome, and and sharing them. Um, I think that I think that un, um, accountability is is underrated. Um, we think that it's about punishment, but really accountability is about you know being able to articulate how what mistakes you made, um, and 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 metabolizing the event so that so that there's growth and and that process was um, life changing, like profoundly life changing. Because I imagine if you were to not do that, if you were to sort of try to say, well, you know, it could have happened to anyone and, you know, these things happen, that it might just eat you up inside after that. It does. And it doesn't go away. It never goes away. Um, you know, there's, there's, in our society, trauma, you know, can lead to addictions. And that path wasn't ever um, an option for me. I don't know why. I just felt... Um, wow, you know, but, but learning was, was a a really, you know, big calling. And so, you know, I, I started to write and, and, um, and learn as much as I could about, um, about myself, um, and realizing that, you know, my life of adventure was really trying to teach me a whole bunch of things that I wasn't really paying attention to because I was going so fast, um, you know, kind of racing from one adventure to the next. And so 
the other thing you know that I really learned was process what you've experienced um, because it has value. Um, so um, yeah, you know that winter as a community, I think that that winter um, more happened with the um, the Strathcona Tweedsmere avalanche that it, that involved the kids. There was a lot mm-hmm. of changes that occurred. Um, and, and, um, and so that's, that, that's been a really great thing. I think that we've learned a lot about avalanche, um, terrain choices. We now have the avalanche terrain exposure scale, um, which helps, helps, um, users use, use the backcountry wisely in winter. Um, we now have the Canadian avalanche association or sorry, um, avalanche Canada, which was, mm-hmm. um, the CAC for a while, the Canadian avalanche center. Um, now it's Avalanche Canada, and so those are you know resources for the public to use in in order to make better decisions um, when going out in winter. Um, you know one of the challenges that I see with this winter is that I think that backcountry users are going to need to remain patient because this this these challenges with the snowpack aren't going away, and so you know you know my message has been. Learn to ski really simple terrain this winter. Like learn to ski twenty. Yeah. Be happy skiing twenty degree slopes because um, and listen and and listen to your gut. And Ken Wiley is with us this half hour from here on Vancouver Island. Ryan as well. We're talking about uh, Ken survived an avalanche twenty years ago. Twenty years ago last week, actually, um, it had been a deadly year in the BC interior in 2003. And we've been talking about the impact of that. Um, Ken has taken that moment uh, and gone on to work in risk management. He trains others now. And I imagine, Ken, that so much of what you teach and so much of what you learned back then is applicable far beyond, you know, backcountry and adventure kind of stuff that a lot of it's about listening to your gut and about trusting your instincts and going a bit slower. And how do you think it applies outside of, 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 um, of you know, avalanche country, so to speak. Yeah, um, really interesting question. Thanks, Ben. Um, the um, um, I, I teach um, human hazard risk management, and so or, or human hazard management, and so you know, there's a you know, I notice this even in my backyard when I'm doing you know projects with power tools. Um, there's there's a tendency for us humans to deny the deny the idea that um, harm will come to us, right? Like I think that I think that we we sometimes deny the hazard that we're exposing ourselves to, and deny that we we actually need to to protect ourselves. Um, and and so there's this there's this model that I teach that has kind of pairs of opposites, and and one is denial, um, and the other opposite is acceptance. And so, um, when we're when we're engaged in a in an activity that that may may produce harm, um, it's it's important to recognize when we're denying that we need to take steps to protect ourselves. Um, and so, what I'll what I'll notice is like, oh, I'm going to make this cut with my skill saw. It's no big deal. I don't need. I don't need, you know, my ear protection, my eye protection. It's just a quick cut. And then I catch myself with that denial that I need to protect myself. And then, I, okay, I'm going to go get my 
my safety, uh, my pe uh, personal protection equipment, and 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 there's a whole chain of them. For example, there's you know if if we're in a situation that we're we're making errors that could lead to an injury or or worse, um, it takes courage um, to error correct and just you know, like stop time out like we're we need to reevaluate and wow. uh, you know i'm making a mistake here and and somebody could get hurt and and so embodying that kind of courage to error correct um is is a, a powerful skill set you know for anybody that works in any any industry where um where hazards are present um Oftentimes we'll we'll push through, and just say, oh, it's not a big deal, um, or you know we're in a, we're on a trajectory already that could could you know land somebody injured, um, but having the ability to just say, no, I've led us down this path, but we need to backtrack, and 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 make some changes here. Um, you know, another one is. Um, you know, sometimes in, in situations that we're in social situations, we might think that the input we have um, is insignificant. Like, well, you know, I'm, I'm the least experienced person here. Like, what would I have to offer? And I'm encouraging people to speak up and just say, I am significant. And what I have to say is significant. Sometimes the best ideas come from the humblest places. Absolutely. So, yeah, those those who didn't know. Ken Wiley, I, I, we'll leave it at that. Uh, I've run out of time, but thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I'm thrilled that, that that day led to so much, so many good things in yeah. the years that followed. And thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you, um, Ben. Thank you very much for the interview. You know what is cool? Getting nominated for an Academy Award. That must be so... I, I can't even imagine how cool that might be. To, be, uh, to hear your name read out as they're reading those Academy Award nominations. For my next guest, though, this isn't the first one, not even the second one. It's number three, the third time this pair have been nominated for an Oscar for their animation work. This one, though, seems particularly gratifying because although they spent three years working on this animated short, I mean, without the, the credits, it's about seven minutes long, three years working on it. You can imagine just how painstaking it was. It's called The Flying Sailor. Um, again, they weren't convinced it would make the cut. On Tuesday, it did. Up now, the nominees for Best Animated Short Film. The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. The Flying Sailor. Ice Merchants. My Year of Dicks. An ostrich told me the world is fake, and I think I believe it. Yeah, they're up against uh, some pretty colorful titles there, aren't they? Um, <laughs> the Ice Merchant and the uh, Flying Sailor seem to be the most sober of, of those titles. It's a fantastic little film, though. I've watched it quite a few times already because it's seven minutes long, right, or eight minutes long. It's based on the true story of a young British sailor who was right near 
the explosion, the explosion in Halifax back in 1917, the great explosion as it's known, the most powerful man-made blast in history before the atomic age. He was just 30 meters away and he woke up one kilometer away from there wearing nothing but one boot. He remembers nothing of that flight, but Albertans Wendy Tilby and Amanda Forbes reimagined his near-death experience over that seven minutes as sort of a journey through life. It's about, it's about mortality and it's about much more. And they join me now to explain. Thank you so much and congratulations. Our pleasure. We're happy to be here. We are. Well, congratulations. I know this isn't your first nomination, but it must always be thrilling to hear your names and the name of your and the name of your film. It is really thrilling. You don't even realize how much you've invested in it until that moment when you're just over the moon. You were at Sundance when this. Uh, you were at the that famous film festival when this was announced. Uh, what was your re- your reaction when you heard? Well, as you know, they announced this very early in the morning, so it was it was six thirty for us at uh, Park City, Utah. There was a request that we record our reaction, and we were a little bit horrified by that at first. <laughs> yeah, at six thirty in the morning, <laughs> and, uh, and then there's always that very distinct possibility your name will not be announced, and then the cam you've got a camera on you, and you have to <laughs> think about destroying it. But anyway, we we had fun, actually, because our producer and our publicist was with us, and we all piled into one of the hotel room beds and just waited while, uh, until the our category came up, and then we just shrieked and hooted and hollered and bounced out of bed, and it, anyway, it was, it was it funny. It was funny, yeah. So <laughs> that's how we found out, and it was a sort of a surprise and a relief, actually, that it had made it this far. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is that, that we counseled ourselves to not yell because, of course, we've got neighbors all around us trying to sleep in their hotel rooms. But when we found out we were on the list, we yelled as loud as had we been at a hockey game. So <laughs> we just couldn't control ourselves. Yeah, you're like one of those rock bands, you know, making too much noise. Yeah, yeah I thought about throwing a lamp. <laughs> a little bit. And then we actually even, it's not on video, but we bounced on the beds a little bit, but the ceilings were so low, we were in danger of smashing our heads. Yeah. So <laughs> cramped our style a bit. Yeah. Indeed. Tell me about The Flying Sailor, because when one reads the synopsis of it, it feels so very Canadian, right? I mean, the, although it involves the, the true story of a British soldier and the famous Halifax explosion of 1917 that I think most Canadians have some familiarity with. Uh, but what was the inspiration for for it? And, and it could be a paragraph. Instead, it, you turned it into quite the journey. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we heard the story... 20 years ago, when we happened to be in Halifax, we visited the uh, Maritime Museum and in the section dedicated to the explosion, we saw a short blurb about Charles Mayers. Um, And this was one of many firsthand stories of the devastation. But his story was that he was on the docks when the ship blew and he found himself two kilometers away, naked except for one boot. And we were astonished and, and being animators, we kind of, we thought, man, that's a that's a good story. And we wondered what was that trip like for him flying that distance. It was actually on the back burner for about 20 years. But our our idea was to take what would have been a few seconds in the air and turn it into 
a few minutes of an animated film. And it it, it is, in essence, a, a near-death experience. And we were inspired by that because we could make it anything we wanted. Um, we're, we were fascinated by the arc of his trajectory, taking him through the stages of a near-death experience, which is something that we we looked into a lot. Uh, we, we read a lot of accounts of near-death experiences. One of the things that you decided to do, I know that the the sailor um, was younger. Uh, you decided to to add some years and add some girth to the flying sailor. Why did, why did you do that? When we first thought of it, we were thinking we were going to make him a young man. And then we quickly realized that he was much more interesting if he was middle-aged, in part because what we do in the film is stretch a few seconds into a few minutes so that you see the sailor flailing in slow motion and it takes on a sort of a balletic quality. And if you see a young man doing ballet, that's what you're used to seeing. But this sort of older, more compromised character, we found it simultaneously funnier and more touching. We just related to him more. We we wanted to relate to him personally in that way. I found it interesting the way you did the flashbacks because, you know, oftentimes we see sort of people's lives pass through their, before their eyes in most drama. It tends to be sequential. It tends to be fast and it tends to be important moments um, or important people. And this wasn't this, the way his life flashes through his eyes as he journeys on this, you know, through this, through the side in this ballet motion was different. You, you must've looked into how you were going to present that. Yeah, that's that's really true. We we thought that we would portray these as fragments that were not what would be the greatest hits of his life or what you would read about in his obituary. That these were just little snippets that almost dreamlike that come into your head and we don't expect the viewer to come away with a complete portrait of him. But the point was more to have these resonant moments that could be very small, like a just a walking through tall grasses as a toddler, or maybe a back alley fight, something like that. So they're, they're, they're just these kind of um, things that might come into his head. But we also did include a few people that we, in our minds, one of them might be his wife, or his mother. But we're thinking we were thinking of her as probably deceased because people do often report of dead loved ones almost welcoming them or beckoning them. She uh, doesn't quite look like she's welcoming him. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's she's sort of a little bit disapproving because yeah. she's right. kind of saying, "Now you've gone and done it, haven't you?" But we we leave it quite open to interpretation, and and for some of them, we were inspired by archival footage that we were digging through and we threw in as placeholders like there's one of a kid eating porridge it looks like and he's and we actually put a cigarette in his mouth or in his hand sorry just as a little bit of a joke because our sailor is obviously a smoker but we just it's just an everyday thing eating cereal uh would be something that you do as a kid and it's just a little flash of a memory it is a remarkable, I mean, his journey is remarkable. Tell me a bit about the use of sound, because I've looked back at some of the uh, some of the other uh, shorts that you've made in the past, and people often discount the use of sound and animation. But in every one of your films, and this one included, even just the match sequence when he's first, when he first opens is remarkable. It must be, a, it's such an important part of what you do. Well, thank you for saying that. It's It's true that sound doesn't get the credit it deserves because it, it truly is, 50% of the film. 
it, it even changes the pacing. You know, we come from the film world when back when we started, you could only put two tracks of sound on while you were working. And even then it would be so rough. And so working in the computer, you can lay in a zillion tracks of sound and really try things. I think the most taxing part of it, Wendy was the one who had to deal with a lot of this, was the sound of the explosion, which is, of course, kind of harrowing, violent and percussive. And she listened to it over and over and over again and, and did a number of, sort of amazing edits on it. And then we refined it in the post-production. Along with her, the sound designer who kind of yeah. took it over. Yeah. Right. And so our, our sound designer was also the composer, uh, Luigi Alamano. And um, he did that amazing track for us. He just did such a beautiful job. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, uh, because there is no dialogue, I should point out to listeners that there is no dialogue in this. It is really just the journey and the sound. So obviously the sound was important in it. I was surprised, I wasn't surprised to see that it took so many years for you to put this together. But I think often people will look at something like an eight minute piece of animation or seven, I think it's seven and a bit if you don't include the credits right? and think, well, that must have, you know, you must have, what did that take a few months? And no, no, <laughs> this was, this was, this was painstaking. Why was that? Oh, yeah. Welcome to our lives. We're constantly sort of having to justify the amount yeah. of time we spend on something. But the, luckily, we have the the National Film Board who produce this. They're very supportive of that. And they, they you know, they understand animation um, is very painstaking, no matter how it's done. And as Amanda was mentioning earlier, we you know, we live through this whole digital revolution and have been on both sides of it. And one always expects that, well, it's going to be easy now, or people, yeah. people think, well, the computer does it for you now, doesn't it? And it's, it, it really doesn't. If anything, it just ups the complexity. And it also creates bottomless pits of possibility. You can change things in the computer. If you make mistakes, you can fix them, or you can just try things over and over again, and it, it can become quite burdensome. So sometimes we look for ways to constrain our process uh, to avoid some of that. Regardless, we are working frame by frame and we are moving, creating characters inch by inch in that way. The movement is still created the old fashioned way. I think maybe a good illustration just to give somebody an idea is that there have to be about at least 700 discrete paintings of the sailor. Yeah. yeah, I would say more than that. Well, I, I'm yeah, just but, I'm yeah. even underestimating yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So if you think about the naked sailor flailing in the air, that means that yeah. every hair on his body, his eyes, the tattoos, the tattoos, <laughs> that all yeah. has to be drawn over and over and over again to get the effect that we did. And the computer won't do that for you. Or if it did, you wouldn't want to look at it. But the 3D, people get confused by 3D because they think it means the the colored yeah, the, glasses. The glasses, but... yeah, no, it's that sense of depth when you watch it, right? Exactly. It's in in many ways a miraculous technology, and in many ways horrible and cumbersome, and just never ends. So just just the shot of the city of Halifax blowing down took a very, very, very long time. But not surprisingly, because you're exploding. I don't know a hundred houses yeah. or something like that. And we worked with a, a 3D animator yeah. for that, but it, it was, we had no idea what we were getting into no. or how long it would take. Yeah. It, 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 I was looking back, um, of course, on the NFB website, there's yours. Um, you know, there is, I believe, Wendy, an earlier movie that uh, that you made, Wendy, back in the early 90s. Yeah. It's incredible to see 
what a powerhouse Canada has been traditionally in this animated short category. And you're just another example. We've won awards. Um, I gather the NFB has a big part of that, but there is a real rich history of what you do in this country, and you're part of it. That's true. Canada is very well known for animation and for documentary, and we actually owe that to the film board. We would attribute that fact totally to the film board because... It has created the the tradition of publicly funded filmmaking. And when we go to other festivals, for example, Sundance, where we just came from, and we talk to other filmmakers, and they they spend much of their time fundraising, and they get funds from disparate sources, and it's a real challenge for them. And we have a, an organization that's actually kind of an in-house production place headquartered in Montreal, but it has regional offices and they, they support this kind of filmmaking. And it's, it's, it's why Canada is known for, for this. Well, we'll be watching on March the 12th, I hope, in the case of your uh, your duo, at least your partnership, that third time's the charm uh, for this <laughs> one. And th- thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Vince. Lovely to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, it was really fun to talk. Well, this is a really fascinating story, I thought, because for years now, of course, uh, there's been a really concerted effort to try and encourage more Canadians to find a career in the skilled trades. And that is especially true of late when it comes to promoting it as a career option for women. Uh, Here is one example of the kind of campaign uh, from WorkSafe BC out here in BC. That's the province's workplace safety body. like working with my hands. I don't think I could ever sit at an office job. It's better than uh, sitting behind a desk and staring out the window all day. <laughs> I wanted to try something different. I love it. I like to learn. <laughs> the Women in Trades program was designed to increase the number of female apprentices in the province of BC and to provide support to women to kind of address some of the barriers for them entering careers in the skilled trades. Of course, there are many traditional barriers to overcome, but some of them are as basic as finding the proper gear, safety gear for the job, including personal protective equipment or PPE. In what has traditionally been a man's world, the companies providing stuff like hard hats, vests, footwear, gloves are kind of stuck in a bit of a time warp. Uh, A November report by Canadian Standards Association found that 92% of about 500 women construction workers surveyed reported one or more problems with their PPE. 92% of 500 women surveyed personal problems with their, and this is on construction sites, this is a a safety issue. Across uh, the 3,000 women in various professions, the CSA polled only 6%, 6% regularly wore PPE that was actually designed for women. And that's where my next guest's story begins. Jody Hetner was working in the environmental engineering a decade ago, or was, and quickly realized the gear that she was required to wear was definitely not built for her. So she started to alter it, and that spread, and an idea was born. Make stuff that fits properly for the people who are actually going to wear. And Jody joins me now to tell us more about Helga Wear. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Ben. It, it, it is a fascinating story because if you look at all the products that are that are not made properly for women, um, safety gear is one of them. I mean, we've read it across spacesuits. It's all over. But this was a big issue for you. How did you come face to face with it? 
Oh, well, I'm going to be quite blunt. Uh, my <laughs> biggest problem, working on the coast of BC, out in Mother Nature, on remote sites, trying to be a young professional, professional woman in engineering, wearing PPE that literally made me look like I was wearing my dad's work clothes, like I was playing dress up. Um, right. So apart from looking like I did not belong, I did not deserve to be there managing a team of people, every time I had to take a quick leak, Unlike my male counterparts, like I couldn't just zip behind a bush and do what I had to do. Literally, while I was still working, it was a big deal for me to try to go to the bathroom. I really had two options. Neither were very good. One was walk out of line of sight of, of my colleagues, which is not allowed, and then half strip and take a quick leak or uh, call in the only vehicle on site to have someone else stop what they're doing, pick me up, take me to the only working facility, wait for me and bring me back. And so that cost me, that cost my team that put me back in terms of schedule and, and budget, which meant I sacrificed being on the, you know, the best chosen teams for field work. And in my annual reviews, I was always behind. And that to me made no sense. Like that, that time cost in and of itself was just unreal and then when I did what my female co-workers were doing which is don't drink don't drink anything no coffee at your morning yeah. break no water until you know until you get dizzy or headachy in the afternoon and then if you have to go to the bathroom you you hold it that's the actual option women were using at the time so like I, I could not stand so it. That, that was either happened. either yeah. either a safe a safety concern or a career setback, right? It's not this isn't about comfort or, or looking or looking normal. This is really much more profound than that. What did you do? I mean, I, I gather you sort of started to alter it yourself and then that kind of caught on. Yeah, so I altered my own gear. I went through a bunch of prototypes before I found something that didn't get me laughed off the site and that I could use pretty discreetly. And I found it saved me about an hour a day. And then I started doing it for my female coworkers because we got to expense a new set of gear every year. So I would ask people for their last year's set of gear and I would just try Frankensteining it to, you know, make it work for them like I made my gear work for me. And when I finally came up with something that saved me about an hour a day and, like I said, didn't get me laughed off the site, I thought, well, heck, we should have more options for PPE for women. And why not try? If this helped me, it's got to be able to help someone else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm well aware of just how much we've been trying to, ever, we're trying to encourage women to work in the trades, but the idea that they can't find anything that fits them, that stat from the, uh, from the uh, Canadian Standards Association, that 92% of construction workers uh, reported one or more problems with their PPE, it seems, even now, it seems astounding that so much of what's out there just isn't made for what should be about half the workforce, right? Yeah, and you know, it's it's because we don't really have to make things for women as it stands. For me, as a manufacturer, when I was looking to the regulations to try and figure out how I, I would con construct my gear so that I met all the specs, I turned to CSA, for example, CSA Z96, which is the High Visibility Safety Apparel Standard. And there is a section under there that talks about how gear is to be constructed. Uh, specifically, it says it has to be constructed to remain in place on the wearer for the duration of foreseeable work and an adequate means to make that happen is to provide a range of sizes so that was my first eye-opening experience that said wow right there they're telling us that women are pretty much no more than 
scaled down versions of men. And that's just not true. We, we cannot, the CSA study actually says we cannot linearly scale men's dimensions and adequately represent women's dimensions. It's just not possible. This is not new. This is just finally catching up to us in terms of PPE. Yeah, and good. And you've set out to try to fix this at least as much as you can. Oh, oh, heck yeah. Yeah, when I spot, when I targeted on that language, I started at talking to anybody who would talk to me, the BC Centre for Women in Trades. Everyone who took a look at that language said, yeah, that's a big problem. And we, we really have to start acknowledging the distinct nature of women's proportions, especially when it's a matter of safety, like PPE. So you started to make your own, right? I mean, this is what you've, you've started to try to make clothes that actually fit the people they're meant to fit and provide the kind of safety they're meant to provide. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did that. I actually got the unique opportunity in 2019 to develop flame retardant um, safety coveralls for the tradeswomen of C-SPAN, which is a huge shipbuilding company out west here. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, I, I got to learn about the problems they were having with fit, which it, it centers on safety coveralls. If you can imagine trying to fit a woman into a man's safety coverall, they typically fit for their biggest dimension, which is chest, torso-ish area. If it fits there, then yeah, obviously. Obviously, it's going to be way too long in the sleeves, too long in the cuffs at the bottom of the legs. But what people don't think about is that the shoulder span's also going to be too wide, which restricts your arm mobility for any overhead work you do. And overhead work, like electricians and welders, they spend more than 75% of their day doing overhead work. So now their arm mobility is restricted. And then also it means the crotch height hangs way too low. So anytime you want to bend your knee to about a 90 degree, you're restricted. You have to first pull up your crotch of your garment just so that you can bend your knee. And that affects, in shipyards, anytime you step over a sill, and there are tons of those, anytime you climb ladders, you can't even do an effective three-point climb without every other rung letting go of the ladder to yank up your crotch height just so that you can make the next ladder rung. I mean, it must have a real impact on women looking to go into the trades when you when you think, wait a second, I can't find anything. I I don't feel comfortable. I can't. I'm I'm inhibited by what I'm wearing and I'm not safe. Yeah, unfortunately, I I see us pummeling money into incentivizing women and trades training. But the unfortunate truth is the second they get there out there in the field, they're going to have to start working in a man's world where everything has been designed for their experience, for their body proportions, for for them, it, it, right down to the PPE. So it, I feel like until we start making significant investments into the women already working in trades, specifically with PPE, we're not going to retain them. We can We can get as many of them attracted into trades as we can, but they're going to figure it out pretty quick that it's just not designed for them. So what would you like to see with your company? I mean, you've started this and, and you're trying to provide this, uh, fill this gap. Um, where, to, where to from here? Uh, where to from here? So pushing, pushing forward with getting support for the fact that it's time now. It was time years ago, but it's definitely time to start paying the premium because, yes, it does cost more. We don't have the economy of scale that we have when we're making men's PPE. We're just not there yet. So what I'd like to see, there's something from every single stakeholder. We all have a role going forward, right from the women, the boots on the ground, the women who need to start reporting every near miss 
that has to do with their PPE. The men, they work alongside the allies that see the women struggling and aren't writing it on their daily job safety analyses forms. We need to see it escalate. We need to see our joint occupational health and safety teams take it seriously. See these things instead of pass-fail binary enforcement. Are you wearing your PPE or aren't you? We need to move past that and say, well, does it fit? Is it, cause, is it actually an extra hazard to you? Uh, so we need, we need to move past the way we've, you know, business as usual on that level. On a manufacturing level, we need to see policy so that manufacturers can't do what, what is a very common practice right now, which is offering women's sizes. You don't see my air quotes, but they're there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what they actually are doing is just down-labeling the men's PPE. So it's right. still a man's garment. It's been based off of male body dimension and proportion, but they've relabeled it. So we need to see policymakers and the enforcement community, everybody needs to kind of step in and take a real gendered lens, look at what we're doing and start making some significant changes to actually design the experience for women. Well, the company is called Helga Wear. Jody, thank you so much for filling us in on this. I really d- had no idea, and it's a been it's been a fa- very educational just look reading your story than hearing you talk about it. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm pleased to announce that this law will come into force on August 27th, 2021. Provinces and territories will be able to offer single event sport betting products like wagering on the Grey Cup, Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, or the Super Bowl. These changes to the criminal code will allow provinces and territories to use revenues to fund programming, such as health care or education, as they do with other lottery revenues. And with those words from Justice Minister David Lametti, the Canadian gambling landscape shifted dramatically in August of 2021. Essentially announcing that the federal government was about to make it legal to gamble on individual sporting events, giving provinces the ability to regulate it themselves. Before that, only six provinces allowed parlay betting, uh, you know, essentially had to bet on more than one thing. Uh, But that 2021 bill allowed for single game bets, as he mentioned, such as the Stanley Cup final, the Grey Cup, the Super Bowl. It was touted as a way to push an estimated $10 billion a year uh, that Canadians spend or estimated to have spent on single sporting events as part of betting conducted illegally back into the coffers of provinces, for instance. Betting companies, of course, jumped on that opportunity. I'm sure you've noticed there are ads for gambling everywhere now. If you turn on the TV, billboards, buses, social media, you name it. And they feature celebrities, of course, including Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, even the great one. Wayne Gretzky was suddenly on screen talking about just how great one betting app is. With every tap, a new legend is born. A chance to grab destiny. Defy the odds. And strike. Because every bet with BetMGM has a potential for greatness. There he is, Wayne Gretzky, promoting betting, of course. Now, those uh, promoting the moves say that betting is just part of the sports-watching experience, meant to be a bit of fun. It's been welcomed in many corners. It was already legal in the U.S., so Canada was playing catch-up, they say. And uh, this way, more money stays in individual provinces instead of Canadians betting elsewhere. Um, And, of course, the sports gambling market in this country, they believe, is on track to roughly double 
within five years. This isn't the betting slip at the British bookies kind of set up either. This is technologically advanced, very advanced, easily accessible. And some worry that that is more costly than it is beneficial in the long run. Addiction experts are concerned that law that these law changes and all those ads could create challenges for current problem gamblers and create new problem gamblers, especially amongst young men. Uh, the Justice Minister did address those concerns back in August of 2021. We'll continue to work uh, with uh, provincial partners uh, with respect to mental health and programming, specifically targeted targeted at uh, helping uh, gamers uh, who might very well have an addiction problem. It, it, it is a serious issue. And, and all, the, all the people that I've spoken to in the process, uh, as well as people who've, who've, who've come up in front of uh, parliamentary committees, have, have told us this, uh, and, and, and they're right. Uh, we do need to pay attention to it. Well, one place they could be looking is the UK, where betting rules were relaxed more than a decade ago. My next guest has been following the impact of that very closely uh, since returning there from having spent many years here in Canada, studying at the University of Toronto. And Dara McGee is a lecturer at the University of Bath in England, who studies and teaches the impact of sports gambling on young men in the UK. And he joins me now. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Now, you spent time in Canada at uh, the University of Toronto. You spent some good years here. And uh, a lot of what drove you to study this was your return, your return to uh, to the other side of the pond, so to speak. Yeah, I was, I was incredibly fortunate to spend five very happy years in, in Canada, uh, Toronto specifically, uh, studying and, and, and playing football or, or soccer, as I called it, for those five years. And uh, it was really kind of the, the cultural invisibility of gambling in Canadian society that, unbeknownst to me at the time, would very soon after lead to me becoming very curious about what I would see back in the UK and Ireland. What had happened in your, I mean, not in your absence, but maybe in your, what had happened while you were gone that would have, that, that is similar to what's happening in Canada now? I often describe what happened while I was gone as a, a perfect storm. Perhaps the, the political domino that mm-hmm. fell was the 2007 Gambling Act in the UK, which history tends to refer to as kind of one of the most liberal political kind of movements in, of recent times. And, and that really kind of deregulated the gambling industry in, in quite a profound way in the UK at a time where, of course, you know, the US and Canada, you know, gambling was relatively invisible culturally. You know, of course, part of this is, is timing as well. You've, you've got a, a government in the UK that deregulates gambling at at the same moment where the smartphone becomes culturally ubiquitous, people suddenly have access to, to smartphones. They have access to technologies, mobile technologies. And of course, the gambling firms uh, were only too aware of that as well. And so you have the growth of, of what is a very digitally innovative online gambling industry emerge at the very moment where the UK has decided to deregulate the industry. Um, and these two factors together feed into to what happens from there. Now, when I was there for for many years, about you know just a little after you got back, about the same time actually. I mean, one noticed that uh, there was a lot of gambling ads out there, especially when you were watching sport. But it was always marketed as being a bit of fun, a bit an add on to the to the sporting experience. That's part of the marketing strategy. Yeah, I mean, one of the real success stories of uh, of gambling's growth in the UK is really that rebranding project. The UK perhaps is unique from from Canada and the US in the sense that you've got this long kind of cultural lineage of of gambling. Um, it's something that most people are aware of, but that gambling culture was was largely tied to the image of the high street betting shop, which to the average Canadian 
it was perceived as quite a seedy place, uh, a place for older men. Certainly not a place where where younger people or, or women tended to frequent. Um, and so the real rebranding that you see in the UK is doing away with that image of the old world of gambling and ensuring that the the cultural insertion of of a digital age of gambling was one that was framed very differently. It was gambling as an entertainment product like any other. And yeah, that, that was highly successful. That cultural insertion of gambling targeted at, at a new demographic, much younger demographic. How How successful has it been? The real success of that is measured by the cultural acceptance, I think. And, and what we have in the UK over the last decade has been a profound uptake, acceptance, and, and ultimately normalization of gambling as part of everyday life. The, the real success of the, the gambling firms has been the targeting of this new demographic and appealing to a consumer base in ways that engendered a, a new kind of image of gambling. And of course, sport has been front and center of that success. Um, that's really where the power of advertising and the use of celebrities, particularly athletes, come in. Um, there's been this kind of re-engineering of what gambling is and what it can be. And, and rather than a product perhaps linked to significant harms, a product associated with with risk, um, risks to health and uh, mental health and, and well-being, gambling has been you know, marketed as a as an add-on accompaniment to sports fandom, a way to amplify, uh, deepen, increase your engagement with the game, uh, perhaps even increase your your engagement with your favorite team, and and of course that's incredibly powerful for a, a younger younger demographic who who were really unaware of kind of the risks tied to it. Yeah, tell me about the risks because I imagine that a, a fair a fair number, perhaps you know the, the vast majority of people can have you know, put a few dollars, wager a few dollars on a game and walk away, win or lose, treat it as it is meant to be, as it is marketed, as a bit of fun. But there's always, a. I mean, we, we're well aware of the downside of problem gambling. How has this amplified that issue? Evidence historically has suggested that, of course, gambling is not an entertainment product like any other. Gambling uh, in many different forms is associated with significant harms. That is everything from relationship breakdown, debt, you know, mental health struggles, mortgage defaults, you know, and of course in the UK increasingly suicide. Um, and in particular for young men who, you know, find themselves bombarded by adverts that are selling a particular vision of what gambling can be in their lives. Um, many are unaware of the dire consequences associated. Um, and that's where exposure to gambling and the, the the vastly increased exposure to gambling becomes a public health issue, one that demands regulation. You know, I'm by no means anti-gambling. I don't advocate for kind of, you know, the complete regulation of gambling. But what we've seen in the UK over the last 15 years, and, and certainly what we've seen in, in Canada over the last year, is a far cry from that. That's an industry that is encouraged to self-regulate. And, and that's, I think, where I, I would take a stand and suggest that Canada take heed from and, and learn from the UK context. Self-regulation does not work. Dora, when you look at what's happened in Canada a lot the last year with all the advertising, the huge rollout, the growth in the number of companies offering these services, is this surprising to you or is this the, is this the strategy? There's two answers to that question. The first is, yes, at a personal level, it has surprised me that Canada took the decision that they did. The deregulatory moment for Canada comes at a time where here in the UK, the, the UK government were, were waiting um, in the coming weeks for a white paper that will turn the tide on what has been a decade and a half of kind of, you know, a liberal gambling market here. And 
And many politicians, you know, 15 years ago were, were very keen on the idea of a, of a regulated market that would, of course, uh, eat away at the prominence of the, the grey or the, the black gambling markets. And if you speak to those politicians today, of course, their perceptions, uh, for the most part, uh, are, are quite different. And there's a, there's a growing recognition here that curbs are needed, that we do need to safeguard uh, and protect particularly young people and, and a generation who, of course, have grown accustomed to digital technologies, to the smartphone, at the same time as, as of course, they're now being um, sold what is ultimately often a highly addictive product. And and just when when you look at the rollout here, it's been quite um, it's been quite overwhelming. I mean, there are literally ads for for gambling everywhere. I mean, it's 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 quickly inserted itself in the whole notion of watching sport in this in this country. Yeah, and and you know, obviously, I tend to talk about the comparison between the the UK and Canada, but in reality, when I look at the Canadian market over the last year. I see the influence of the US rather than the UK, and mm-hmm. and it's notable that at the same point that the UK is is you know considering very serious curbs to kind of gambling regulation. That of course, um, yeah, the US influence has has led to an embrace in Canada as well. And I think what you've seen, of course, of the last year is has been wildfire. Really, I mean, the UK, the growth of the market in the UK was quite a slow creep. And I think when you look at the Canadian context, it, it mirrors what we're seeing in the U.S. There's been this vast cultural acceptance, and of course, that is you know that that's the power of advertising. That's the 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 role of celebrities, uh, of course, like like Wayne Gretzky and and many athletes who are who are still playing um, athletes as role models, role models that young people identify with, seek to emulate, role models, of course, that they trust and hence trust the messaging that they receive, and so. Many of the the tactics that we've seen in Canada over the last year, of course, are well honed. They've they've been learned by gambling firms in in the U.S. for a few years now, and and of course in the U.K. for for a decade and a half. So absolutely, it's it's really about a cultural insertion of gambling into the public conversation, and and if that's done in a very commercially slick way, it's it's obviously highly seductive. One of the things you've touched on, which is an interesting point, is a lot of the responsibility for doing this in a safe way is placed on the individual gambler, this whole idea of responsible gambling, that the technology can be used to limit, um, to prevent you from getting into trouble. I often read about algorithms that are able to spot problem gamblers. How effective is that whole control mechanism? I mean, the reality is it's as control as uh, it is designed or, or enabled to be by the companies who hold the power to do so. There's a great irony over the last decade and a half in the UK, and that's, of course, that the gambling industry has commandeered the, the technologies of the Silicon Valley as fervently as, as Facebook or Google or Amazon have. But during that period, we don't tend to see the same level of technological sophistication being used to protect consumers. That's an issue, of course, of, of corporate ethics, but it's also one about regulation. I think that's where the stronger hand of the state is required to establish those parameters, those boundaries, to ensure that appropriate safeguards are there, that appropriate monitoring of, of companies is there. Um, and that's where the the self-regulation discourse in Canada right now is so problematic. Yeah, because I, I know that what Britain has done here, they banned um, athlete stars, celebrities, essentially, from making these commercials and also banned uh, gambling advertising on TV before 9 p.m. So there, there's a beginning of sort of a recognition that maybe this needs, this can't be a Wild West. 
No, and I should, you know, uh, what I don't want to do here is paint the picture of the UK as a as a kind of um, uh, an industry controlled at this moment. It, it's by no means that. And the, the recent ban on celebrities, athletes, social media influencers, uh, advertising gambling has been a long time coming. But it nevertheless is, is a monumental intervention in the sense that it there's tacit acknowledgement now that there is a link between exposure to gambling advertising and, and the deluge of gambling adverts that, that Canadians are seeing right now, and of course, increased risk of harms. And I, I think that's a key lesson uh, for Canadian policymakers to consider is, is the lessons of the UK over 15 years have led us to this moment. And, and there's, there's a growing evidence base there that, that I think that Canada should, of course, engage with. Given how uh, remarkable you found the return to Britain and Ireland, given the gambling culture. Are you worried that when you come back to Canada, you just won't see the same sort of contrast anymore? I've been back uh, on two occasions since the bill was passed. And, you know, I found myself sitting in a, in a sports bar being bombarded by adverts. I mean, I've already been there. And it was a real moment of reckoning for me, having spent a decade based in the UK investigating these issues to suddenly see them in a context where previously I was removed from it all was was certainly a reality check about the the global conditions that that have been produced by a digital age. You know, much of my work also looks at the expansion and diversification of, of gambling firms into the sub-Saharan African market. And a lot of the tactics that we're seeing in Canada are not that different uh, to those that, that I'm seeing there. And so if anything, it's less about Canada and more about the global reach and diversification of, of, of the gambling industry. And, and that's not a not an industry connected historically. That's a digital, technologically facilitated industry today. Yeah, well, Canada is just another market, right? As long as the laws allow it to be so. Uh, Dara McGee, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. 